Hi everyone, I'm Gavin Scott from chartbeats.com.au and thank you for joining us for the latest episode of A Journey Through Stock Aitken Waterman. And may I introduce Mr. Matthew Demby, who's here as always to take our journey further into the Saw singles released in 1988. Hi Matt. Hi Gavin, hi listeners. Thanks so much for all the amazing feedback on our I Should Be So Lucky episode, our fastest downloaded episode ever. We've got another great episode for you this week, three classic hits, all of which reached the UK top 10. And all three of them are songs about matters of the heart. So we're really getting into their groove, writing love songs and love gone wrong songs. And all three of these songs are about romance, relationships, and they had covered that terrain before, but they'd also written songs about going out at the weekend, toy boys, clubbing. This was a time when Saul were really focusing on writing songs that people could relate to. And who can't relate to a love song, right, Matt? This song is definitely one that a lot of us can relate to. This is another landmark release, but this time it's one tinged with a bit of sadness. It's the final single that Saw produced for Mel and Kim, That's The Way It Is. That was That's The Way It Is by Mel and Kim, released in February of 1988. It reached number 10 in the UK and New Zealand, number 4 in Belgium, 5 in the Netherlands, 9 in Switzerland, 11 in Ireland and Denmark, 18 in Germany and 28 here in Australia. It also got a boost in America from being on the Coming To America soundtrack. This song got to 9 there on the dance chart. Now, that's not really a bad showing considering the difficult circumstances surrounding this release. Don't you agree, Gavin? Yeah, it did really well to get to number 10 given the issues with videos and promotions which we're going to talk about and it kept intact Mel and Kim's strike rate of top 10 singles in the UK they never missed the top 10 which just speaks to their popularity in the UK they weren't even in the public eye at this point and they could have a top 10 hit but of course as you indicated Matt the whole release of this song was tinged with sadness wasn't it behind the scenes Mel was battling cancer she was undergoing quite intensive treatment, chemotherapy, having stays in hospital, trying to keep as healthy as possible. In public, the story remained that she had slipped and hurt her back. Of course, the sisters wanted as much privacy as they could possibly wrangle, considering the stressful situation they were going through. And the press was hot on their tail. They had journalists from scummy tabloids chasing them, trying to get into the hospital room. Apparently, one of them dressed as a doctor. That's really how bad it got. And all the time, they were just trying to keep it together. And in between chemo sessions, Mel and Kim would write songs that kept them going, that kept them focused, that was an outlet for them. And those songs were to be on the next album. And another outlet was recording this song. Even though Mel was really unwell, it was seen that it would be a good idea to try and get another single together, you know, to lift her spirits. Yes, they wanted to sustain their career and things like that, especially the record company would have wanted that. But for Mel and Kim, it was about, let's do something that's going to help Mel. Let's raise her up. And so work was begun on That's The Way It Is is with Kim going in to the hit factory in November 1987 to start working on the track with Saw and then Mel would come in in January 1988 to add her part but Matt should we hear from Kim Appleby about this song coming together let's hear from Kim well that was written for us because you know Mel was feeling better after a treatment of course she wasn't fully recovered but you know she was off the heavy drugs and, and, and the, the chemotherapy, and we felt that it would be, Mel and I felt that it would be great to go in the studio just to give her a lift. 
just to make her feel normal, you know, because our, our lives up until that point had just been hospitals. We're in a hospital every day, back and forth. But it just became, everything became about hospitals. And it was just a lovely uh, boost for Melanie, you know, to get back in the studio, feel normal again and be reminded of, of what she what she does. Um, so Nick spoke to the boys and I went in first to sing the track to see if it would work for us. And I think that was, um, uh, she was kind of poorly at the time as well. Um, not ready because, you know, chemotherapy and not sure if you feed for quite some time. So I went in to do a tester and didn't like the track. I, it just wasn't sitting right. Just And, and Mike wasn't happy either. But, you know, it was me, Mike and Matt. And Mike came to the decision that the track wasn't working. It just seemed, you know, for so many reasons. And then he just disappeared into a room for an hour and came back with that's the way it is. Genius. Just genius. And he came back and he said, what about this? And I stood in the control room and said, he heard the news. And I remember Mike said, no, you don't know what you're going to do. So I went in thing and did a rough vocal that was then sent to Nikis. Nikis was like, yep. I think it's a great track, just needs Melanchim on it. It needs that Melanchim kind of sound. And again, that took time. And then Mel and I went to the studio very late at night because at this time the press were desperate of getting pictures of Melanie not looking her best, let's say. And we were, we were, we were very conscious of, of that, that they didn't see Melanie. So the peak cleared out the studio. And we went through the back door and I think we recorded something like 10 o'clock at night, all the receptionists, all the engineers. There was only one engineer there. Can't remember who it was. And it was the tonic that Mel and me needed. We were laughing again. It was just like the old days, cracking jokes with the boys. And no pub, obviously, because we didn't finish till about two, three in the morning. But it was it was fantastic. It, it was a great tonic for us both, really, to just be back making music and, and doing what we absolutely loved. So, And then, um, again, the same process, left the studio, the boys mixed it. This time we knew we couldn't be in the video and I think um, they weren't going to make the mistake with the puppets again and instead they got dances it you know and of course it was never going to be the same again you know Europe and around the world they were like how are we supposed to sell this there's no Mel and Kim you know we need the girls in the video because at that point of course not everyone knew how they were suspicious that something was going on with Mel because they hadn't seen us for a while but the record companies globally were just like you know we, we, we can't sell this video this, where's the girls you know and they bring up the the, the the billboard poster at the end of Mel and I and then you hear me laughing to kind of get as close as they can to, to, to Mel and I appearing but in saying that it was received well and uh, it went top 10, which is incredible because there was no promotion, no Mel and Kim and, 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 and dancers in the video. So it just showed how, how, how loved we were really and, and the impact that we had made that we had released two, two more songs without us appearing in, in either of those videos. Uh, Matt, how good is it hearing Kim sing those lines from the song? 
Yeah, yeah, so wonderful to hear her voice and, and her first-hand account of, of the making of that song, which sort of meant so much for me, certainly as a fan at the time. Now, the sessions for this song, by all accounts, was a great mood lifter for Mel, but it was quite hard for the guys who hadn't seen Mel since her treatment began, and they were really left upset by how ill she'd clearly become. Nick East from Supreme Records has talked about Pete Waterman becoming quite distressed the night that he uh, met Mel again when she came in to record the song. Nick told the Mel and Kim website, and I quote, Mel was great. She was really positive and just really glad to get back in the studio. She really got a lot out of that night. I had warned Pete that Mel didn't look like she used to look, but when he saw her, he literally nearly collapsed. It was such a shock for Pete. Mike Stock also spoke about that session to the Mel and Kim website, and he said, and I quote, We were happy to do the session because that's what Mel wanted, but really we shouldn't have done it because she was not well enough. Matt and I were not stupid and we knew what was going to happen and what the future was going to hold for Mel. So we went through with the recording session because we felt it was the least we could do for her. Very, very sad, Gavin. Yeah, it must have been really awful, but Mel sounds like she was the one making everyone feel at ease. And we would see that again later in 1988 when Mel and Kim popped up on Wogan. She just diffused any awkwardness by making jokes and being bubbly, her bubbly self. And it sounds like that's exactly what she did in at PWL. She's the one who made everything everyone feel more at ease. Another thing that came out of that recording session, of course, was the B-side, You Changed My Life, which Mel and Kim had written as part of those sessions at home that you were referring to, Matt, earlier. Let's have a quick listen to You Changed My Life, and then we'll hear from Kim talking about that B-side. that at home during Mel's treatment we become bored because of course we'd gone from being super busy to all of a sudden doing nothing you know apart from hospital treatments and 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 stuff so we've got a little uh, studio set up because Mel was living with me so um, we've got a little studio set up in one of my uh, spare rooms and we just started to tinker around in the studio and just, you know, sit there and just sing melodies to each other. And it was kind of like, let's have a go at writing. And then we realised that actually we can do this. So when we went into the studio, we said to Nick and Pete that, you know, we've got a B-side. Well, we didn't say it was a B-side. <laughs> in our world, it was an A-side. But, you know, it was kind of like, yeah, kids, all right, we'll stick that on the B-side. And um, we went in and, um, yeah, they did the music and and, and it made a B-side. So that was nice. Another tonic for, for Mel, seeing our fruits of our labour uh, coming to fruition. That was lovely. Loved hearing that. You know, Gavin, when I knew we were going to speak to Kim, I had to hear about that B-side. We had to ask that question. I always really loved this track. I can vividly remember standing at my record player and flipping the 12-inch and just loving the B-side right away. It's a great little song, upbeat, but with a little bit of melancholy running through it as well. It's also a glimpse of what a second Mel and Kim album might have sounded like. They'd been working on material in interviews. They'd been speaking about how they were planning to mature their sound 
down. A little bit of talk about, you know, they were keen to sort of continue pursuing the house route. And there were even some little indications sometimes that they were thinking about moving on from Saw. We know they had new management at this point. Who knows where it may have gone had fate not intervened. Yeah, and they also, on that Wogan interview that I was talking about, they sang a little bit of one of the tracks that they'd been working on, a cappella. Fantastic vocals. Look it up on YouTube if you haven't seen it. And that song ended up becoming If You Cared, which was a track on Kim Appleby's first solo album. So they definitely had the goods when it came to songwriting. Some great tracks that they worked on together. Shortly after That's The Way It Is came out in March 1988, so did The Truth. The girls held a press conference. They couldn't hide what was going on any longer. The press were circling. There was so much speculation going on. So they held a press conference where they said, okay, here's what the situation is. And Mel appeared. She walked onto the stage, you know, with the aid of walking sticks, which must have just been a really hard thing to do. But also a relief, I'm sure, because, you know, to have the amount of uh, attention that they were receiving, unwelcome attention at the time, there were some horrific stories, unauthorised stories running in some of the papers. Uh, Someone connected to their past life had sold some family photos and that sort of thing. And it it had caused a great deal of distress. And I think once the feeding frenzy had reached that pitch, you know, they, they really only had one choice, and that was to come out and sort of set the record straight and also sort of to get some of these people off their back and be able to move forward. And once the story was out there, the girls later appeared on Good Morning Britain in summer 1988, that's UK summer. You know, at that stage, their hopes were high that Mel was going to recover. They were talking about their plans again for the future. But then by mid-1989, that's when Kim has revealed that she knew that Mel's illness was terminal. That was when the family knew what was going to happen. And then Mel sadly passed away in January 1990 at the age of 23. Just a real tragedy. Yeah, absolutely. And Pete Waterman still gets extremely emotional when he speaks about this. He said she was only 23. It still tears me apart just remembering it. She really was like a daughter for me. And Mike Stock also said it's probably one of the saddest things that's ever happened to us in our professional lives. I know it hit Kim very, very hard. I just don't think she's ever really going to get over it. I don't think you can. They really were just two lovely kids who were into the fun of it all. It was a beautiful thing, really. And it was. I just have to think about the height of Mel and Kim and the absolute joy that came out of those records. They exuded joy in all their performances. They gave me so much joy. And it's just incredibly sad that Mel's no longer with us. But, you know, we have the records and they're wonderful records. And all those songs that Mel and Kim had been working on did end up on Kim's debut solo album. She launched her solo career in late October 1990 with the single Don't Worry and an album that was full of songs that had been written with Mel and Craig Logan from Bross, who Kim was involved with at that time. That self-titled album was a way for Kim to share with the world what she and Mel had been working on, which was fantastic for us all to hear that. And she had a good amount of success in the UK with those solo records. She had the Kim Appleby album and then she had the Breakaway album a few years later in 1993. Matt, should we hear a few of Kim Appleby's solo singles? Yes, please.
Okay, that was Don't Worry, GLAD, which was remixed by Phil Harding and Ian Kerno, incidentally, and Light of the World. Now, in the bonus material, Matt and I are going to talk at length about Kim Appleby's non-saw solo output. But wouldn't you know it, in 1994, Kim Appleby was back working with Stock and Aitken, wasn't she? She was, she was. A bit of a surprise, but a, a, a happy surprise. Yeah, she recorded the song Free Spirit with Mike and Matt. Let's hear a little bit of that now, and then let's hear from Kim about returning to work with Stock and Aitken and she also talks about whether she considered reuniting with Stock Aitken Waterman back when she started off her solo career and her answer might surprise you. Here's Free Spirit and then we'll hear from Kim. Did you consider going to work with Stock Aiken Waterman again when you started putting out solo stuff? No, not at all. No, no, because the hit factory had been in place then. Um, I wasn't too crazy about everything. Don't get me wrong, Donna Summer, what they did with Donna Summer rocks. Um, absolutely rocks. Um, but no, I wasn't crazy about what he had become musically. Love the boys, always will. It just wasn't um, into the sound. It all just sounded a little bit kind of conveyor belt for me to be honest with you um and I just didn't know where I was gonna fit how, how would I fit in you know I'd gone from being with my sister to tracks being written specifically for us to now being part of this machine really and it wasn't my sound it wasn't a sound that I gravitated to so no I, I never considered going back to to the boys when, when I did my solo but then in 1994, you did record Free Spirit with Mike and Matt. What was that like, reuniting with them for that track? That was weird, actually, at first, because I wasn't sure how they were going to be towards me because there'd been like a six, seven-year gap. You know, Mel had passed away. Uh, they had had the hit factory now. Boys had fallen out. You know, that was well-documented. And now Mike had set up this amazing space over in near London Bridge. It was over there somewhere. And I wasn't sure, you know, Matt had had these problems as well. And it, this gap, I wasn't sure how the boys were going to receive me. I wasn't sure how or what style of track they were going to give to me as well. Because by this time, I, you know, I had Don't Worry, the album Kim Appleby. I'd done Breakaway. I'd been writing with loads of different people. You know, I'd really flexed my kind of writing and really was honing my my craft as well, you know, which the boys taught me a lot about that. You know, that's one thing Saul taught me was how to structure a pop song because they're brilliant at that. And, you know, it was fine. I mean, the first day, Matt sat in the corner, Mike was there, and uh, Mike had some, you know, Matt was on the guitar just playing some things, and we were looking for titles. I remember it was titles. And the three of us were kind of huddled together, and, and, and you know, Michael and Matt said, we need a title. And I was like, yeah, title, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I went, free spirit. And Matt went, now, great, free spirit. And then Mike said to me, well, then go on then, go home and write it. Because it was a bit like Mike was, a, you know, it was a bit like, call yourself right, go on then, go home and write it. So I remember I went home and I did. You know, I came in the next day with um, the first two verses. And I remember it was really weird. The whole attitude towards me changed 
from the boys. You know, it was kind of like, okay. Mike was really happy with it, which was a huge compliment because um, Mike, as we know, is a great lyricist. He's a great pop writer. Mike was was really pleased. And I remember him saying, well done, well done you. Done. And then we sat down and honed the chorus and then we went into the second verse. And, and then it was more relaxed. You know, we had fun in the studio, a song, and then again left them with the track. The only difference this time was that, you know, the track had to come back to me for my approval of the mixes, you know, so much had changed, you know, but Mike was, Mike was cool with that, you know, it came and, and he had done, a, you know, he'd done a, a, a great mix, a great mix on it and, and stuff. And so, yeah, it started off a bit kind of like, oh, how's this going to work? And at the end, it was kind of like, oh, good. I have to say, Matt, and we may get to this because we will probably do a Stock and Aiken episode at the very end of this series or maybe two. But spoiler alert, Free Spirit is one of the best singles from the Stock and Aitken era, possibly the best. I mean, I love things like Sky High and Total Eclipse of the Heart as well, but they were cover versions. So as far as original songs go, I just think Free Spirit is fantastic. It's got a bit of an Urban Cookie Collective motivate vibe about it. And the production is just so strong compared to some of Kim's solo stuff, which, you know, was good pop stuff. This is just really pounding, driving dance floor stuff. Are you a fan? Oh, yeah, it definitely takes me back to that era it's so on the money you're right motivate urban cookie collective all that sort of thing and also a sort of a quite uplifting positive lyric as well so yeah good little song and mike stock spoken quite positively about this session as well he said to the mel and kim website and i quote yeah it was great and we worked fine together it was a good session and we all enjoyed it but at that point the record industry was tearing itself apart and kim got caught in some kind of crossfire with emi i don't know what happened but peter robinson was moved out of the job the label got torn about and suddenly there was no more interest so that was a shame free spirit could have been a bigger hit than it was and we could have done more with kim which i was hoping we would a shame isn't it gavin that there was no more after this it was a shame and kim's solo career really did ebb away after that free spirit didn't make the uk top 40 as her previous couple of singles from the breakaway album hadn't and so she kind of took a backseat from the pop star thing she stayed involved in the music industry but for many years she resisted attempts to get her back out on the road performing her songs until relatively recently and this was the last thing that Kim spoke to us about she spoke about Mel and Kim's legacy and the decision she made to start touring and performing some of those songs again so let's hear from Kim talking about that we did so much in such a short time of our career actually and we can only imagine what would have happened had had we gone on to be honest with you, um, as my mum used to say, you would have been worldwide. You would have been worldwide. My mum used to say, bless her. Because we did make such an impact at first. You know, we only appeared in two videos. And even now when I do festivals, you know, I did the first festival um, with Martin Ware. That's what got me back out there because they've been asking me forever, for like 10 years, do the festival. Will she do the festival? And I didn't. You know, I just kind of, I don't know, it, it, it was something that was... It's very precious to me, you know. I didn't want to mess it up. I wanted to leave people with that image, you know, and and that memory. And uh, I was approached by Martin Ware because he has a BEF project, the uh, British Electronic Foundation, and he assured me. He called me and he said, "I promise you, we'll you know we'll be sympathetic. I've got the best musicians. We'll rehearse." And because I'd explained to him, I'd never performed any of these songs uh, solo. 
And I went into the uh, rehearsals with him. He convinced me and I went in with the rehearsals with him. And the band were exactly what he said. And of course, Martin is a legend. We all know that. And um, I did rewind. And the day of, I was uh, nervous. I mean, I felt like I was going to be sick. It was just, I hadn't performed live forever. And um, Martin was brilliant. The band were brilliant. And I just thought, say they've forgotten us. Say it's kind of a bit like, oh, oh, yeah, I remember them. And blah, blah, blah. And anyway, to cut a very long story short, Gavin, I went out there and Martin said at the end of the set, he said, you know, you got the best applause of the day. I went out there and what was incredible was, I mean, at the back, I could see some Mel and Kim banners. We love you. Uh, Man and Kim, but at the front there was a, a couple of girls that were dressed to the T as as Mel and I. So that meant that people would specifically come to to listen to me sing the uh, respectable because I only did the one track, and then after that they all came out. The festivals it was like, will she, you know, will she do any more? And so I did Let's Rock uh, with this other great band, uh, but this time it was the set. You know, it was uh, the back-to-back hits, Gary. And they just love it. And you know what? I love it. I love that they haven't forgotten about us. I love that they still love us. Um, I love that the music still brings them joy. And I love being up there and representing Melanie and myself and reminding everyone. Oh, God, I, I don't want to get tearful with it, but just reminding everyone of just how special we were. I tell you what, Matt, Kim didn't want to get teary. I'm getting teary now listening to that. Absolutely. And what she said about, you know, we only ever made two videos, that's something that sort of came to me while we were researching this podcast because it, it that's stunning to me because Mel and Kim just loom so large in my mind and my, you know, my teenage spirit because Mel and Kim were just so important to me. And to think that they only ever made two videos before tragedy struck is just stunning, really. And, you know, this track, that's the way it is. It's always carried a lot of mixed feelings for me. I really enjoyed it as a record, but the the sadness of what was happening at the time really sort of cast a shadow over this record for a very long time for me. But I really feel like that's lifted quite a bit in recent years. And, you know, now I just enjoy it as a wonderful, joyful pop record. And it's a way of remembering Mel and her spirit because her spirit really comes through on this record. And I'm so grateful for Mel and Kim and all of their music because it just means so much to me. And I've got to say thank you also to Stock Aitken and Wadman because these records, they're like, they're definitely in my top five. Stock Aitken and Waterman artists. I just adore Mel and Kim and I'm so, so happy that we're able to talk about them and remember them and give them their due. And thank you to Kim for being so open in our interview and, and so candid and, and you know, going there. It, it was, um, yeah, as I say, it was quite an emotional interview to do. So that does bring our Mel and Kim story to a close, but yeah, with another hit, another big hit for Mel and Kim, another big hit for Saw. So we're going to move on now from an artist who chose not to return to the hit factory, Kim Appleby, deciding not to go there when she went solo. We come now to a singer who would also move away from PWL before long, but for the time being, it was Stock Aiken Waterman who continued to supply Rick Astley with his worldwide hits. And his next worldwide hit was Together Forever. Let's take a listen.
Rick Astley's fourth UK single there, Together Forever, which was released in February of 1988 and got to number two in the UK. It was refreshed from the album by Pete Hammond as the Lover's Leap remix. And wouldn't you know it, it was a Stock Aiken Waterman song that blocked Rick Astley from getting to number one, wasn't it, Matt? It was. It was our good friend Kylie Minogue who came out of nowhere. I'm sure that Rick's label had no idea that something that big was going to block him from number one because really Together Forever looked like a certain number one and then Kylie got in the way. That pesky Kylie. And we'll talk a little bit more (laughs) about the relationship between Kylie and Rick's records in a little while. But Together Forever did get to number one. It got to number one in America, Rick's second chart topper over in the US following Never Gonna Give You Up, of course. Matt, where else did it chart around the world? It did so well. It also got to number one in Spain, Ireland and Canada. In Belgium, it got to number two. Italy and Germany got to number five. Number six in Iceland, number 10 in Austria. In the Netherlands and Denmark, market got to 12 and here in Australia 19. So another solid hit for Rick Astley and you know with a track record like that in the UK he'd had a number one never gonna give you up a number three whenever you need somebody and two number twos when I fall in love my arms keep missing you and then together forever he was on fire it's safe to say he absolutely was and so was Saw this is like one of the killer killer tracks from their glory period it just could not be bettered it's a fantastic song. Now, apparently it was originally conceived as the follow-up to Never Gonna Give You Up. And I think lyrically, as well as musically, it was definitely a direct sequel to that song. But it was held back in the release cycle in most markets outside of North America to expand the lifespan of the album, to make sure the album didn't peter out. Well, it didn't peter out, did it? What a killer album and what a great single. Classic Pop Magazine quoted Mike Stock as saying this, We'd done all the other tracks, we listened to them and thought, people have already bought Never Gonna Give You Up. What else is there on the album that really does compare? We needed Together Forever to get home to people what Rick could be. Well, I think mission accomplished there, Gavin. That's right. And even though it was a killer song, there were no chances being taken with this single. There was the remix, which I referred to, refreshing the song for single release. And it also came with a brand new B-side written by Rick, but produced by Stock and Waterman. Let's have a listen to I'll Never Set You Free. That was I'll Never Set You Free, the B-side to Together Forever, not available on the album. Now, it was No My Arms Keep Missing You, but it was stronger than Just Good Friends and I'll Be Fine, other B-sides that were written by Rick and produced by Saw. It reminds me a little bit of The Love Has Gone from the album. I would imagine there were some people who went out and bought Together Forever just to get this brand new song. Yeah, and I think quite a good move to throw Rick a bone and let him have the B-side because, you know, publishing reasons, that would have been quite low lucrative for Rick and you know he was always keen to showcase his writing skills he didn't want to just be seen as a puppet look I think also this is quite interesting in that the other male vocal on this which I assume is Mike Stock is very prominent isn't it? Yeah I forget how many songs we hear Mike pop up I mean obviously we know he did backing vocals but yeah often he would kind of find his way into being a more prominent figure on some of these songs like showing out nothing's going to stop me now things like that that we've talked about the only thing that surprises me is 
how restrained Rick's UK record company were. You know, we had those string of hits that I talked about, one, three, two, two. I'm surprised they didn't release a fifth single in a way. I mean, this was the era of Michael Jackson releasing pretty much every single track off Bad as a single. And here we had Rick Astley only releasing four singles, all of which had been top three. I'm surprised they didn't push one more out there. I've got to suspect that what we're going to talk about quite soon may have been a factor. I think Rick was really at the end of his tether pretty much around the time of Together Forever. And if they were perhaps going to, you know, pump out Don't Say Goodbye, I think, you know, maybe that might have been pushing him a bit too far. Very possibly. However, over in America, they did release another single after Together Forever, but that is because they did skip over Whenever You Need Somebody and When I Fall In Love. Now, North America released a different track from the album, It Would Take a Strong, Strong Man. Here's a reminder of how that one goes. Okay, very much a Motown pastiche there. That's probably uh, from the era when they were considering launching Rick as a Motown-style artist. It did extremely well in North America. This was a number one in Canada for Rick and also got in the top 10 in the US, reached number 10. Very strong showing there um, and quite interesting that the international label did not, you know, look at that and say, oh, okay, Australia is going to get this now. We didn't get this as a single. But, you know, again, the American market is quite different, isn't it? Yes, Australia would offer get both the UK and the US singles. I remember that happened with Culture Club where we would get the alternate singles released in different countries all released here, but no, that didn't happen with Rick. I feel like it would take a strong, strong man, probably would have been a top five hit in the UK had it been released, just because it was stylistically a little bit different, but you know, it wasn't to be. With Rick so popular all around the world, from you know North America to Australia to Europe, that did have a downside. Rick was getting exhausted by being flown all around the world, having to do promo here, there and everywhere, obviously recording music videos, interviews, all that kind of stuff. I remember Karen Hewitt saying in our chat with her that recording the album was one thing, but then bam, that's when it all happened. You go off and you pulled here, there and everywhere. And she remembered him being exhausted. Mike Duffy said the same thing. It really did get to Rick, didn't it? Yeah, that's right. When Smash Hits interviewed Rick on the set of the video for Together For it was pretty clear that he was struggling and really needed a break. He said, and I quote, I'm caught up in a whirlwind snowball that just keeps going, carrying me along with it. And if I step back and stop, it's liable to end. I don't want to be a moaning git, but I think I'm now going through a phase of asking what's it all about. It's all happened too quickly to analyse what the hell's happening to me. Really sounded like a cry for help. It wasn't just that workload that was bothering Rick at the time though. He'd just been humiliated at the BPI Awards where he was supposed to receive the Best Single of the Year award. When he went up to get his gong, the producers instead cut to a set by those old farts, The Who, a band that was no doubt more to the taste of those blokes in charge. Now, that was a show of disrespect that coincided with a growing tidal wave of attention for Rick, some of it hostile. Saw were very suddenly household names, with two emerging superstars on their books, Rick and Kylie Minogue. Gavin, those two got linked in a lot of rumours, didn't they? Oh yeah, they did. It wasn't just because they were at numbers one and 
two on the UK chart. There was this rumor going around that if you played Kylie Minogue's I Should Be So Lucky at the wrong speed, you'd realize, oh my gosh, it's actually Rick Astley singing it and they've just sped it up, which would not have gone down well for an artist like Rick who prided himself on his musicality and his voice and, you know, and with good reason. He was a good singer and he could write a good song. Yeah, and the media picked this up too. Satirical puppet show Spitting Image even did a parody on TV with Saw shown creating a robot Kylie who had a button which allowed her to sing just like Rick. Check that out online if you can find it. Now, Rick hated being seen as a part of the sausage machine with the public not understanding that he wrote half of his first album. But it seems that at one point in time, he also felt quite detached from some of his hits. He doesn't feel that way now. He's a lot more in tune with them. But Classic Pop magazine quotes Rick as saying this, With the likes of Never Gonna Give You Up, Together Forever, and Whenever You Need Somebody, Saw wrote all three of those tracks and I just turned up and sang. I didn't have any part to play in any of those tracks other than making tea on those sessions. Ouch. Now, Mike Stock wrote in his book that the emerging puppet master image that was being pushed in the papers at this time was really starting to get on his nerves. And by now, Mike was also starting to feel some resentment over the public image of Saw that Pete Waterman was fueling. He wrote in his book, quote, It was around this time that Pete started sounding off about knowing more about pop music than anybody else. He made a big thing about how good Saw were. While I thought we should be more self-effacing, we became the focus for everything that Rick didn't want. He's a good writer, but his songs weren't going to be as successful as ours. I spent a lifetime writing songs. If it was easy, then everyone would be doing it. Yeah, look, there were clearly all sorts of tensions happening around the hit factory around this time, both between the members of Stockake and Waterman themselves, but also between the artists and Saw. And this was just a sign of that. And it's foreshadowing what we're going to get to with Take Me To Your Heart, which is obviously the only other Stock Aker Waterman track released by Rick Astley still to come, that kind of tension and the eventual split where Rick walked away from PWL. Yeah, well, apparently Rick was quite upset about a lot of things that were going on behind the scenes. Apparently he flipped out over a plan to make and release a hit record in the fastest ever time as a part of a stunt for the Guinness Book of Records. He apparently disappeared for four days and was uncontactable. Pete Waterman said that Rick blamed Saw for forcing him into it, but Pete insists it was Rick's management who wanted the singer to do it. Pete wrote in his book, and I quote, From then on, the relationship between Rick and us started to change. He and his management started to suggest more and more that we were bullying him into doing things and trying to use him as a vehicle for ourselves. I'd nurtured Rick Astley and brought him through. I'd had a lot of fun with him, and more than anything, I liked him tremendously. Suddenly, as far as I was concerned, he'd gone mad and it was like I was a stranger to him. What I didn't know then is that he had a problem with his own success. We found out later that he could not stand being famous. That was kind of unfortunate for Rick, wasn't it? Because he was incredibly successful. So to have a problem with your own success when you're one of the biggest singers in the world, kind of a tricky situation. Yeah, but flash forward a few decades and all's fine. He's sort of uh, healed the wounds and he's loving being famous and he's loving singing those songs, which is great because we love those songs. That's right. Now, our next track is another one that received a Pete Hammond remix for its release as a single, Matt, what song am I talking about? Yes, next up we've got the return of Sunita, and this time there was no pesky red sports car to alienate her fan base. Cross My Broken Heart was released in March of 88. Let's have a listen.
That was Cross My Broken Heart by Sunita, which returned her to the top 10 in the UK. The song reached number 6 in that country, 7 in Ireland, 12 in Spain, where she just had a massive hit with GTO, as well as 18 in Germany, 19 in Switzerland, 39 in New Zealand, and 55 here in Australia. Simon Cow must have been thrilled to see his first protege back at the top end of the charts, eh Gavin? Yeah, that's right. Typical Australia, hey? Always letting the side down with Sunita. Now, I think a lot of the success of this song was due to the fact that it was so relatable. Yes, gimmicks had worked for Sunita in the past with So Macho and Toy Boy, but as we saw with GTO, you know, it wasn't always a guaranteed thing. You had to get the gimmick right. It was definitely safer to go with Cross My Broken Heart, which is a story that most people can relate to. Everyone's either had or has heard about a cheating partner. But Matt, we have questions about the lyrics of Cross My Broken Heart, don't we? I could spend hours trying to analyse this song in detail, Gavin, probably a lot more detail than Stock Aitken and Waterman ever, ever intended people to look into. Like the lyrics, my friend told me he would break my heart. And then we go on to the best friend talking, you know, sharing the secret uh, about that she was dating Sunita's boyfriend. Now, are these two friends the same people? And does the second friend, the best friend, know that she's with Sunita's boyfriend? And if she doesn't know, why doesn't she know? Well, yes, exactly. Is the friend who warned her he's going to break your heart, is it... He's going to break your heart because I'm actually seeing him as well. And so you could have just said, don't go there, Sunita, because (laughs) he's going to break your heart because he's actually seeing me as well. But maybe they're different people. Maybe the my friend and the my best friend are different people because surely the friend who said, oh, he's going to break your heart might have given that extra bit of info. But then why would the best friend admit it? You know, last night I was talking with my best friend. She had something to say to me and there he ends. (laughs) Why is this best friend suddenly, so-called best friend, suddenly deciding, oh, I've got a pang of guilt, I'm going to reveal, you know, I'm going to tell you a secret. Cross my broken heart that you can't reveal it. It's like, what? So you're going to tell Sunita that her boyfriend is cheating on her, but you're going to make her promise not to tell? I, I don't know. It's very confusing. Well, my interpretation is that they they don't realise they're dating the same guy, but Sunita kind of figures it out halfway through. I, I like the mystery of it, and I, this kind of reminds me of like a country song. Is that kind of sort of first-person storytelling, and especially due to the fact that it's about betrayal. I think it's in that tradition. You could almost imagine like an early Dolly Parton's singing this song. <laughs> Especially with the they in, that, that sounds a little bit country. An added layer of complexity here is that the single was quite prominently marked as being a remix, Gavin. Yes, indeed. So this is where we get to the remix factor, which could be another reason why this puts Anita back in the top 10. People might have had the album, but oh, now I need to go and buy the single because it's remixed. So that could have helped it up the chart. It was, you know, how many singles into the album were we by now? Lots of singles. By the time Cross My Broken Heart came around, so yeah, maybe they really did have to go, remix! It's different! So that people knew. I asked Pete Hammond about remixing Cross My Broken Heart. He couldn't remember doing it. Not specifically, because as he said to me, look, I, I mixed and remixed so many things that I can't remember every single one. So then I asked asked him in general, okay, when you took something from an album version and turned it into a single, what was the thinking? What were you aiming for there? So let's hear Pete talk quickly about that. The album version was often a a slightly longer version, more or less what we called the straight run. So it was the album version was more or less what was on the tape. 
with a fade out because there were always about six choruses at the end, but we fade after two or three, you know. That was called normally the album version. For a single version, we'd tighten it all up a bit. A few edits here and there and, and maybe a few more overdubs, but make it a bit more more lively than the, the straight run. And is that for radio play? Make it more? Yeah, for radio, yeah. yeah. And I guess to give people who had the album a reason to buy it. Yeah, it's something different, yeah. So Matt, Pete definitely made this song pop more, didn't he? He definitely did. And speaking of remixes, around this time, Simon Cowell had developed quite the reputation for hanging around like a bad smell, (laughs) demanding remixes and sitting in on the production sessions. I think we can safely assume it was he who demanded the single be remixed for release. In his book, I Don't Mean to Be Rude, But, he said he'd learnt how important this kind of involvement was from Pete Waterman himself. Quote, I would go into the studio and watch the way Pete handled the engineers and producers during a recording. I began to learn all about what it takes to produce a hit. A song can be mind-blowing, but it's the production and the final mix that determine how successful the record will be. When I first began shadowing Pete Waterman, I already knew I wanted to hear from the final mix of the song, but I had to learn to tell the engineers and producers what I wanted. That, in essence, was what I learnt from Pete Waterman, the language and the know-how. Now, Gavin, there's always been mixed messages from Simon Cowell about what he does. Sometimes he'll say he genuinely adores pop music, and other times he seems to slate the record he's been involved in. Like I've heard him perhaps jokingly referred to Sunita's career as appalling. That brings out suspicions that he was quite a cynical operator. But speaking of Saw, he wrote this. Their songs were simply too commercial for some taste. Not for me. If I want art, I'll buy it. The day I met Pete Waterman was easily the most important day of my career. I would say that Simon Cowell has possibly been involved with more appalling records than Saw. That we haven't got to the appalling saw records they're coming and in part of me can't wait (laughs) to get to those records but there's not as many as simon cowell i feel like i mean the man who was behind power rangers zig and zag i would say robson and jerome but stock and aitken were involved with that as well but anyway let's just say i don't think anyone should be casting aspersions we should at this point hear from sunita about cross my broken heart yeah and let me just say this record is not appalling this is a good record and i want to hear what sunita has to say about it here she is I loved it. I loved the sort of samba, calypso sort of beat. It was a bit spicier musically. I loved the story content. I loved the fact that, you know, again, you know, it was relatable for teenagers and and anyone going through heartbreak and dealing with it and friendship and just real life stuff. And amazing to make that video. I had all my girlfriends in it. I had Kevin back again as the love interest. I was still allowed. Simon would let me just dress up in anything I wanted to wear. So I, you know, I never had stylists because, um, you know, in the 80s, I was one of those. I was a bit punk rock, but not allowed to dye my hair or do things like that because my mother wouldn't let me. So I'd have, you know, white hair extensions braided into my hair um, because that could happen without damaging it. And I would just cut up swimsuits and any bits and pieces that I found and make them into clothes and find odd random things at Kensington Market and weird places and turn them into outfits on the videos. And I enjoyed it so much. The creativity and the originality and people asking me, where did you get your stuff from? You know, and those, I mean, people look back now and think, God, what were you wearing? But at the time it was considered kind of innovative and creative and, 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 and cool. And I, I, I loved it. 
The great thing about chatting to Sunita is she packs a lot into an answer. So in that answer, she talked about the song, the lyrics, who it appealed to, her look, her outfits, bam, 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 all in like a minute and a half. She's on it. But she's right. Her outfits were out there. They were. They're one of the key things that I remember about her. And I certainly remember really clearly what she was wearing in the video for this. And I also today, as a bit of research, saw her Top of the Pops appearance where she was wearing one of the outfits from the video. This micro mini skirt could not have been any shorter or any tighter. She really rocked it. She looked great. She was having so much fun. It was all a big wink, wasn't it? Like, you know, this sort of uh, baby doll look, this sort of extreme camp. She really knew what she was doing. She was winking to the gay fans. She was appealing to the young kids. I've got to say Sunita was a lot of fun as a pop star. She was no dummy. She knew exactly what she was doing. She's a smart, smart operator and I loved hearing her talk about this record and also I loved hearing what she said about the next single which we're going to get to in a future episode. One of my favourites and probably my favourite Sunita single but that's for the future. And one of her most memorable outfits it, it has to be said which yes we did speak to her about that kind of wedding dress outfit. So it was great. And that's the thing, speaking to her, it made me realise, as you just said, she was really clued in. She knew exactly what she was doing. She still does. I mean, you, you follow her on social media. She knows exactly what she's doing and what she's about. And yeah. Fantastic. So, okay, that's our third top 10 hit. Three top 10 hits. You know, Saw were really on a roll and there are more to come in the next episode, including the long-awaited second top 10 hit produced by Saw from someone who'd been there right at the start. I think we all know who we're talking about. And Matt, who else is coming up next time? Well, next up, we've got one of Saw's biggest ever acts, but with a newcomer in the picture. Can't wait to cover that one. Certainly a major turning point for that act. Indeed. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us yet again for a journey through Stockake and Waterman. Thank you again for all your support, getting the word out there. You know, we're, we're a very small operation. We don't have huge platforms behind us. So it is great when people, you know, tell their friends about us, share our stuff on social media, all that kind of stuff. So keep that coming. We love it. We would like to share this journey with as many people as possible. So thank you for helping us do that. Yeah, we're fueled by passion here, aren't we, Gavin? And so are the listeners because all the feedback is telling us how much you enjoyed this podcast. And that's a total thrill. In this dark and gloomy world we live in, all the nasty stuff going on, all the negativity, it's great to re-embrace these happy, happy, happy records and wonderful memories from our teens. And thanks so much for letting us know how much this podcast has meant to you. And another way you can support us, of course, is to subscribe to the bonus material for this podcast at chartbeats.com.au slash saw. You get something for your money and in this episode we'll be going through kim appleby's non-saw solo material everything from don't worry up till breakaway otherwise we'll be continuing to celebrate those happy happy songs matt was talking about with our next episode in a couple of weeks see you then everybody bye bye